in our first reading, if you look at the citation from Scripture, you might notice that there are a couple of verses that are skipped over in, in this particular reading from the, the second uh, chapter of the Book of Wisdom. And uh, I think it's for brevity's sake, but I wanted to read those, those missing verses now because I think they sort of help fill out what is being said in, in the passage. So we heard, he sets himself against our doings, reproaches us for transgressions of the law, and charges us with violations of our teaching. And then the hidden verses, he professes to have knowledge of God and styles himself a child of the Lord. To us, he is a censure of our thoughts. Merely to see him is a hardship for us because his life is not like that of others and different are his ways. He judges us debased. He holds aloof from our paths as from, as from things impure. He calls blessed the destiny of the righteous and boasts that God is his father. So those words from the book of wisdom are fulfilled less than a hundred years after they're uh, written with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So wisdom is one of the last books to be written before the coming of Christ. And of course it's true for, for Jesus that you know, he not only claims to be a son of God, but the son of God, the only begotten one. And he's hated for it. That's what he's charged with at his trial um, before, before the chief priests and before the Sanhedrin. So, so this reading is, is principally about Jesus. However, what is true for Jesus should be true in some sense for all true Christians. That there should be a way that we too can identify and experience this sort of dynamic for the simple reason that to, to be a, a Christian means to have the Holy Spirit working within us. That's what it means to have a Christian life, to, to love God, is to be united with the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit is working in us, then we should be doing some of the things that, that God has done. Jesus talks about that. You will do these works and greater than these. And we should also expect the, the sort of reception that, that Jesus had. And that reception is not uniformly positive. Sometimes it's positive. You know, crowds following him, hanging on his every word, lots of people who are sick in body or soul coming to him for healings and exorcisms and uh, what have you, or bringing their friends, um, little children come to Jesus, you know, so he's, you know, apparently not this scary dude, you know, if the little kids are, are crowding around him. And yet we also know that he, he meets a lot of very vociferous opposition from the scribes and the uh, Pharisees and the chief priests. Uh, an opposition to the extent of plotting his death for years and then finally sort of pulling it off uh, on, on Calvary. So if we're united to Christ, we are going to have to be like him. And I think the, the first thing to note is that part of that means being different. Now that's what, what wisdom says. His life is not like that of others. Indifferent are his ways. Now I think it's been 
more true in past ages that that Christian um, law and philosophy and culture and art have had a much more dominant position in societies than they do right now. You know, you think of a 13th century Europe is, uh, it's hard to get away from, you know, the, the presence of Christianity in some cultural form or another, or a political form. Um, and yet even, even in medieval Europe, where you have all this Christianity, you also have this tremendous amount of corruption that eventually culminates in the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. There's a lot of problems. And even in that time, you see the call to saints to oppose the prevailing culture at the time, sometimes the culture even in the church. And that's hard to do. It's hard to be different. You know, as, as rational animals, emphasis on, on the animals, we have this herd instinct that we've inherited. And it can be useful. You know, you don't want to be the one gazelle who doesn't see the lion. Um, so, you know, when, when the herd starts moving, you move with them. And so there's a great sort of safety in that at times. But in a world where every member of the herd doesn't see things correctly because of sin, and that's the human reality, sometimes the herd can move in the wrong direction, not away from danger but towards it. And to be different can be costly and sometimes lonely. And just think of uh, one historical example, John, John Fisher... Bishop John Fisher um, of England, uh, martyr, uh, was the only bishop in England to oppose Henry VIII's breaking away from uh, the Pope and from the See of Rome. One, one faithful bishop in the entire English episcopate. It's a pretty, pretty sad, uh, pretty sad record there. He was alone. But I think in that we see we see a real follower of Christ, one who, who followed what the Holy Spirit was telling him to do. So being a Christian means being different, and, and I think expecting that um, there is going to be that opposition. Which brings me to the second thing, which is that if we are being different in some way, as Christ was different, then we should also expect some people to like us, those who are also following Jesus. And we should accept, expect opposition. We should expect to receive pushback. And, and this is, I think, um, I think this is really difficult to kind of uh, to think about and, and accept. To think that we live in a world where we might be hated for our virtues and not our vices where we're hated for the best parts of ourselves and not the worst parts. And that's tough. And maybe almost ter terrifying, I think for a couple of reasons. So first of all, it points to the fact that we can't, we can't actually control what others will think about us. There's the old principle, a thing is received according to the mode of the receiver. The way that people will take us and encounter us is based on them and where they're at, not where we're at. And that's, that's tough to, to not have that kind of control over others and their reactions. I think that can be at, at sort of a deep, deep level. What does that sort of look like when it's a problem? I read a book, I've referenced it in, in preaching before, but uh, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. He's an investigative journalist writing about depression. Um, 
in various ways. And he talks about his own struggle as, as part of this book. And when he was uh, a boy, he was um, rather severely physically abused by, by a family member. And in writing this book, he had to reflect on that experience, and he realized that he blamed himself for it. And he asked himself, why, why do I blame myself for this? I mean, I, I, for any other person in this situation, I would never blame them, but I blamed me. Why? And he said, because that was easier than thinking I lived in a world where I couldn't control other people's reactions. It was easier for him to think, well, if I were just a little bit better, if I were different, then I can, this wouldn't happen again. And it's not true. And realizing that, I think, was a moment of freedom for him. So we don't have control, but I think a second reason this is kind of terrifying is because it means we live in a world where we can simultaneously become more lovable and less loved. More lovable and yet less loved. That's very, that's very scary. That drawing closer to God and accepting his love might mean that we lose the love of others. And again, that's sort of weird. You know, I, I think after living a certain amount of time, most of you are probably old enough to experience some sort of rejection in, in your lives. You know, um, I think in a way I'm grateful for my general ineptitude at sports. You know, the coordination of uh, a drunken monkey doesn't exactly endear you to people on the, on the playground, you know. So, uh, so I learned early on, not everybody's going to like me, and that's just sort of the way of things. Okay, fine, I know, I know where we're at. Um, and I recognize this was a defect. I, you know, I wish I, I you know, had more coordination and was more adept at these things, but nobody's perfect. But that was a defect I recognize. You know, people wanted to play, they wanted a good person on their team, and that means you don't pick Nick first. <laughs> okay. But that it's weird to think that to actually become better, to become better, especially at the most important things, means you get picked last on on some people's teams. Which leads to the third sort of general terrifying thought. What kind of crazy pants world do we live in where that's how life is, where you can be better and loved less? And we could ponder that for a long time, but for the moment in this homily, I think we just need to accept that's where, that's where the world is right now. Okay. And I think, you know, in, in sort of accepting that, it, it took me a while. And it was, very, it was very difficult. And I've had sort of various moments in my life, you know, learning how being better can make you loved less. I'll give you just one example. Um, when I was uh, teaching high school in, in Chicago, I had uh, a 10th period class. 10th period was always like the demon period. It was the last class of the day for most of the kids. And... So they were just like amped up, and this class was full of troublemakers, and then there was a particular troublemaker, we'll call him Fred to protect the guilty, and no matter where I moved Fred, and no matter how many girls I put around him to sort of quarantine him, nothing worked. And, you know, he just, he just always made these little, these little comments, and he, was, and he was very clever about it, you know, and you could tell he wasn't just rambunctious, he was trying to push my buttons. 
you know, it's like the, the great comedian Rodney Dangerfield said, you know, no respect. I get no respect. And I was just so, so frustrated with him. And at the, and, and part of the, one of the things that happened during the year um, is I, I told my vocation story to the kids and I talked about the fact that senior year of college, I'm trying to decide between investment banking for Merrill Lynch and seminary. And, you know, in about November, October, I called Merrill Lynch and I said, thanks, but no thanks, and decided to join the seminary. And at the end of the semester, Fred sent me an email. And uh, he said, Father, I, I want to apologize for my behavior this semester. I was, you know, I was a jerk to you. And he said, it's really because when I was in third grade, I did this thing. I, I think he, I forget, but he did something really nice for his third grade teacher. And the teacher said to him, oh, thank you, Fred. That, that's so sweet. You know, you would be a great priest. <laughs> and, and he thought, oh, you know, that's kind of nice. And he, and, he went, and he went home and he told his brother. And his older brother said, you don't want to be a priest. They don't have any money. <laughs> And this was a real issue because the family was going through some real uh, financial difficulty at the time. So, so not having money, like that, that really meant something. You know, it's not just you don't have the yacht, but you know, there's a lot of stress with not having money. And so Fred decided, I'm, I'm just going to close my heart to that. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to explore that, that possibility, you know, because I don't want to live in the future how I'm living now and all this stress. And then he goes to high school, and he has this teacher who made the exact opposite decision and who chose the vow of poverty instead of the investment banking. And it, and it just, it, it, it sort of drove him crazy to sort of have to every day spend 45 minutes with this person who made a different life choice than him. And I think at the end of the day, he, he sort of saw what was going on. I had no idea. I thought he just didn't like me because you know, my personality or whatever, you know. That's fine. You don't, nobody has to like me. That's not in the entrance exam for heaven. Um, <laughs> but underneath all that, there was something really profound. That he didn't, he didn't not like me because I was obnoxious or a jerk or whatever. He didn't like me because I reminded him of Jesus. And in a way, it was also a great compliment. It was one of the great compliments I ever received was his, his apology letter. And so in terms of what, you know, what does that mean for us, I think, I think all of this, I say all of this for, for two reasons. One, that we might ask for the grace to, to change our expectations. And secondly, for the grace to change our desires. So to change our expectations, to not expect everyone to like us, and especially to not put on ourselves, on yourselves, the pressure of thinking that if I were just a little bit better, everyone would like me. Spare, spare yourself that false expectation. And I think along with that is the desire to live that out, the desire to please everyone, the desire to be liked by everyone which at the end of the day is a desire to be more popular than Jesus, which I think can only come at a very heavy price, you know, the price of your goodness. 
And so what we should desire is to be loved for the same reason that Christ is loved. Because people see goodness in Him. Because people see love in Him. Because they receive love from Him. That's why people love Him. And that's why they should love us. But a thing is received according to the mode of the receiver. And I think we should also have the desire to be patient with others and to be courageous and loving, even if they're not at that time ready to receive it. Even if they're not ready to receive it. Because God knows what in time he will work in their hearts. So let's take a few moments in, in silence and quiet. And I ask you, I invite you to just close your eyes and to speak with the Lord and, and ask him and talk to him about the expectations in your mind and the desires of your heart that he would like to change and purify and make like his own.